Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I've Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So for today's question, I was going to ask you the obvious question, which is, did you ever think about joining the military? But if I'm mistaken, we've already talked about that on this show. Yeah, I think we were at least talked about the fact that we had been approached. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Because we talked about our, our, I think our scores. So my ACT Mm -hmm. scores were so high, I started getting phone calls. Mm Mm-hmm. And you, yeah. you were talking about that too. Yeah, I know one of the big things too. Back, I, I had a friend of a friend who was an adopted Korean guy, and we were both talking about whether or not we would ever go back. Mm-hmm. And he was thinking about going to teach English in Korea, but changed his mind because he figured out if he did go, he would have to actually serve in that oh, military. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So because that is one of the things, like all men have to serve in the military for I think two years mm-hmm. in South Korea automatically. And I always thought about that. I was like, wow, I, that's such a... Because I also thought about drafts and how that mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But what would that look like today? Because I remember when I was younger, yeah. after 9-11, war happened. And I was petrified and I started crying because I thought my brothers were going to be drafted because I did not understand what mm-hmm. was happening and the mm-hmm. concept of drafting. Uh, but like the horror stories and all of the PTSD and trauma and uh, like, yeah. uh, that have happened from drafted soldiers, not just drafted, mm-hmm. all the soldiers, but like specifically to those who didn't want to be a part of the war to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was drafted for the Vietnam War. And it's one of those strange things where... When he would tell stories, obviously, when he's talking to his kids, especially when you're younger, they were funny stories. Mm-hmm. But, but I just know that I'm pretty sure none of his friends survived. He was the only one that did. Right. Uh, and just like these tragic things. My mom was dating someone who was drafted in Vietnam and never came back. And my grandfather was in World War II. And he also would tell these stories that as a kid, I'm like... He would tell about like uh, this woman would give him eggs and he was so hungry, he would just eat the eggs raw and he would say it with like a smile on his face. And as a kid, I just could not make it make sense. Right. But yeah, yeah. As I've said many times, I grew up in a, in a military town, a big military town, and it was a push that you were going to join. And I had, I had a decent amount of friends who at least served for a little bit or are still in the reserve because it was like you could join um, JROTC in high Mm -hmm. school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as we are recording this, Memorial Day weekend is coming up, and we've been talking about the women behind Memorial Day. And we wanted to bring back this classic episode about some of the history of women in the military. So please enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, a few years ago, we did a podcast on women in the military. And this was as the tides were starting to 
turn for women being allowed to fight in combat roles. And we wanted to do another episode, an update on women in the military, A, because, you know, it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also because on January 23rd, 2013, something happened. Yeah, just something. Just something. Yeah, no, the, the ban on women in combat was officially lifted. And this, of course, is despite the fact that there were already women in very dangerous situations, in combat situations, but officially the ban was lifted and the services have until January 2016 to implement the changes. Yeah, right now, just to get an idea of uh, what role women play in the military, they make up 14% of the 1.4 million active military personnel. And this combat exclusion ban being lifted opens up a potential 238,000 jobs, mostly in infantry, armor, and special forces. And it's really with the infantry, those the ones who are on the front lines, although we, we'll get into this more, the question is with modern warfare, are there really front lines. Um, but those are the used to be dudes, exclusively dudes, out there face to face with the enemy on hunt and kill missions and uh, things like that. So what was the reaction to this combat ban being lifted? Obviously, on the one hand, plenty of people were psyched about this. Mm-hmm. Not everybody was, though. A lot, lot of people raised some issues that were... Um, <clears throat> Maybe maybe not the best best issues. Uh, some people called it an untested social experiment and that more women would mean more sexual assault and misconduct in the military. Uh, Penny Nance, who's the president of Concerned Women for America Legislative Action Committee, is one of those people. She said it's placing social experimentation and political correctness over combat readiness. Yeah, the the pri- there are three primary arguments that uh, against women in combat, and these have been bandied about for years. And pretty much any negative reaction will fall into one of these buckets, which is a that women can't meet the physical requirements, and a lot of that deals with uh, discrepancies between upper body strength, in particular, between mm-hmm. men and women. Uh, there's also the argument that women simply don't belong in combat on moral grounds. We're very squeamish about the idea of putting women in the line of fire, uh, and we talked about some of that those those kinds of moral debates in our episode on heroism a while ago, and how it's more of a, a male construct. Um, And then there's also the idea that women will disrupt unit cohesion and battle readiness because men and women together, oh, that's going to cause a lot of wacky rom-com scenarios. It's just like MASH all over again. Well, and it's also, I mean, it gets into these these arguments of people saying, well, men won't be able to control themselves, which it's like, that's, hey, come on, that's a major diss on these male soldiers whose lives are structured around discipline. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it totally takes away any indication that they have any sort of self-control of any kind. Yeah, and essentially, uh, due to changes in our culture, changes in technology, and changes in the nature of modern warfare, all three of those main arguments have been dismantled to the point that the the military says, you know what, it's time. 
Yeah. Megan McKenzie, in a great article for Foreign Affairs at the end of last year, took a look at what some of the societal, cultural, military changes are that are making this ban, this ban that was just lifted, irrelevant. One of them is what Kristen mentioned. It's uh, this increasing counterinsurgency warfare that we're dealing with in the Middle East has virtually erased the com- uh, the concept of combat front lines. There is, there is danger everywhere that they're going. Um, female soldiers' contributions to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were undeniable. There's also been increasing support from within military leadership, not just not just outside the military. And there have been changes in public attitudes also about women's capabilities and roles in war. However, it's interesting, that argument about women disrupting the boys' club at the front lines is something that my friend's father said to me. Because my parents had a Christmas party and invited everybody in the neighborhood. And he he's an old-school military dude. And I asked him, you know, what his opinion on the changing tide was. And he was like, oh, no, 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 sweetheart. No, no. Women women will will interrupt uh, the way that men interact. It's it's really a brotherhood. And, and women just won't be able to, uh, to take part in that. Well, and it's not just male soldiers who have said things like that. Uh, speaking in 2010, this was reported in the New York Times, but I'm not sure if she gave this direct quote in 2010 to the New York Times or another outlet. But nevertheless, Brigadier General Lori E. Reynolds said uh, in terms of whether or not women should be involved in combat missions, she said, I don't think they should close with and destroy the enemy, describing the hunt and kill mission of infantrymen. When you go out and see what the infantry does, the way they live, the way they train, it's good that it's all male. But you could also say that since she is so high up, possibly she just had to make that official stance of, yes, the military is right, this is how it is. But it does kind of stink that that sentiment is coming from a high-ranking woman. Right. I mean, and, and she and she's certainly not the only only female soldier who has echoed those things of falling back on the old gender stereotype of saying, you know what, there's a line and we at some point just let the dudes do it. It's just, you know, that that's where that's where they belong and where we don't necessarily belong. But before we get into uh, more of those uh, contemporary issues of how how things have changed, let's step back briefly to see where we've been in terms of the military's inclusion of women. Yeah, the 1940s was a big time for women's involvement in the military. It was uh, in this decade that Congress created the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, which was converted to full status in 1943, so they dropped the auxiliary part. Uh, These were the first women in the Army, aside from nurses. And by the end of the decade, WACs, as they were called, are enrolled in the WAC Regular Army and the Organized Reserve Corps. And in 1948, towards the end of the decade, the Women's Armed Services Integration Act created a permanent corps of women in all the military departments. This was considered a step forward at the time, but it actually limited to 2% of the total service members the number of women who could participate and formally excluded them from combat duties. Yeah, so so there we have like with it's like a, a celebration but also only to a point. Um, and as these female soldiers gain more and more recognition, I mean, the the wax being included as part of the regular army was a recognition of their major contributions in World War II. But in the post-war periods, um, you know, it's, it's a slow but sure sort of climb toward equality. For instance, we have in 1971, women are authorized to command men, except, of course, 
in combat units. Then in 1978, men and women began training at the same basic training units at some forts like Fort McClellan. Um, and then in 1980, just to give you an idea of the numbers of women in the military, women made up 9.1% of the army. And moving back for a second, in 1981, the policy of excluding women from combat was reinforced when the Supreme Court ruled that the all-male draft didn't constitute gender-based discrimination since it was intended to increase combat troops. And they're like, and hey, women aren't supposed to be in combat, so it's not discrimination. I'm just imagining the Supreme Court justices being like, oh, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, that's what, that's what the, their briefs. Tough cookies, yeah. ladies. And then they shrug and high five and go out for drinks. Still with their robes on. Yeah, yeah. I digress. But things start to progress a little bit. You see, you see the the dial shifting in 1988 when the military adopts something called the risk rule, which allowed women to be kept out of even non-combat positions if they were likely to be at risk of being fired on or captured. So you see that protectionist rule being implemented. But then a few years later, in '93, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Les Aspen basically dismantles the risk rule. He announces a new policy directing the services to train and assign women on combat aircraft and most combat ships, though yet again, that combat exclusion ban is kept in place. No direct ground combat is to be had for women. Right, and that direct combat rule excluded women from 7.3% of Army positions. It also had the effect, as you know, other combat bans had, of limiting career paths and promotion opportunities for women and contributing to gendered stereotypes about the war being the business of men. But even within those tighter parameters, women certainly were able to climb through the ranks of the Army. Um, In 2008, General Ann E. Dunwoody became the first female four-star general in military history and also became the first female to lead a major Army command. And it is kind of one of those those milestones where you say, yay, oh my God, it took that long. (laughs) Why did it take that long? And it's because of combat exclusion bans, because you're not allowed to get in those positions that you need to get to to get those kinds of promotions. Right. Well, going back just a little bit, you know, we talked about how, well, women have already sort of been involved in this kind of combat activity already. Back in 2003, uh, quote unquote, lioness teams were deployed to assist combat units in Iraq searching for women or searching, I'm sorry, women in those countries for weapons and explosives. And then in 2009, we have the development of several other female only units, including those female engagement teams that are written about often. During their first year of operation, these teams conducted more than 70 short-term search and engagement missions in Afghanistan alone, but the military specified that these units could not contribute to hunt and kill foot patrols and had to stay at combat posts only temporarily. So, okay, I see what you're doing. However, in practice, what they did is that female soldiers were required to leave their combat bases for one night every six weeks and come back immediately the next day. Yeah, there was a profile on these Marine female engagement teams in the New York Times in 2010, and it talked about how they would go in and do all of this work, and then since this was one of the first to go in there, it might have actually been the first that this New York Times reporter was following, the Marine legal review team 
went back and said, okay, no, you got to get out of here because we, you know, they had to toe the line of this combat exclusion ban. And it, at this time, all of this conversation was starting in the military about the fact that front lines were blurred. They were having to, you know, make all of these kind of loopholes for women to get in there, but not too close. And, uh, it was around the around 2010 when we started hearing more direct lines out of the military mm-hmm. hinting at the fact that the combat exclusion ban would at some point be lifted. And Zoe Bedell, who was one of the plaintiffs in an ACLU lawsuit uh, in, involving the combat exclusion ban that we'll talk about, uh, was one of the members of that first female engagement team in the Marines. Hmm. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, four service w- women. Zoe Bedell was one of four service women who filed this lawsuit in federal court in San Francisco on November 27th of 2012 in a challenge to the ban. They challenged it as a violation of the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection under the law. And the lawsuit says that the Constitution forbids the government from imposing a blanket ban on women's participation. And so those women, we should name them, Major Mary Jennings Hegar, Jennifer Hunt, Zoe Bedell, who we mentioned, and Colleen Farrell, who is a podcast listener. She is a podcast listener. Hey, Colleen. What's up? Uh, yeah, for instance, uh, Zoe Bedell, who I mentioned, was a Princeton graduate. She's a former Marine, Marine captain who was part of the, one of those female engagement teams going into some of the most dangerous parts of of Afghanistan, but she ended up leaving active duty after she decided that her only future as a woman in the Marines was a lifetime of logistics or support units. Essentially, she, you know, it's like taking a job and realizing that you're never going to get beyond a, a mid-level manager position. You got to move on. Right. And they point out that uh, 85% of the women who have served since September 11th report having served in a combat zone or area where they receive combat or imminent danger pay. They also argue that the ban was putting women in danger because in many cases, women fight alongside men in these female engagement teams that we talked about. They endure the same conditions, but because they're not deemed combat eligible, they don't receive proper training. Yeah. So in a way, the combat exclusion ban is putting female soldiers at greater risk when they're out there. And as Time Magazine reports, at least 860 female troops have been wounded and 144 have been killed in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. So even though they might not officially be fighting in combat roles, clearly because of the changing nature of modern warfare, mm-hmm. it's it's not protecting them. Right. from. It's not guaranteeing them that they're not going to uh, be hurt or killed. Right. And because of all this wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you're in combat, but you're not really. Let's not talk about it. I mean, yes, that does, as we talked about, you know, prevent these women from rising through the ranks, but it also prevents them just from being recognized from their heroism and their uh, accomplishments. Yeah. Major Mary Jennings Hagar, who was one of the, the ACLU plaintiffs as well, uh, received a Purple Heart and the Distinguished Flying Cross for, quote, outstanding heroism and selfless devotion to duty after she rescued her helicopter crew after uh, their helicopter was shot down in Afghanistan. But at the same time, even though she did all of that, she didn't receive recognition for fighting in a combat role. And so it's it's the same thing of like, no, we're, we're doing 
we're doing all of this and we can do all of this. And I think I think we also need to mention that Representative Tammy Duckworth, who's a Democrat in Illinois, um, has been one of the uh, leading politicians who has been advocating for the combat exclusion ban to be lifted. And she lost both legs flying a helicopter in Iraq in 2004. And so she can tell you firsthand that, yeah, we might not be technically fighting combat roles. I might not be in the infantry, but we are certainly in the line of fire. Yeah, exactly. There are, I mean, speaking of dangerous situations, there are some developments that are very beneficial or will be very beneficial when they are implemented. And one of those is that women's body armor is being tested. And you might think, Okay, well, so what? No, I mean, we really have not had women's body armor. We've had women wearing small men's body armor, which is not the same thing because, newsflash, women are shaped differently. Women have hips. Oh, my gosh, (laughs) boobs. So, yeah, they would even when they wore an extra small men's body armor suit, it would still be too long, leave gaps that left them vulnerable. And a lot of women were saying that they would get severely bruised because the armor would rise up on their hips and sit there uncomfortably so they would just be, you know, bruised all over at the end of the day. Yeah, and those those gaps left them more open to bullets and shrapnel, mm-hmm. which only attests to me to the chutzpah of <laughs> these female soldiers yeah. who were nevertheless wearing these highly uncomfortable improved outer tactical vests and doing their jobs anyway. Yeah. At a heightened risk. Um, but the innovations and in the and the resources that the military has been pouring into developing this body armor for female soldiers has been a an indication that yet again, you know, they were taking steps forward to lift the combat ban. And some of these developments and inventions are going to make the whole um, strength and size discrepancy argument a completely moot point. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff coming out of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research projects agency um, building exoskeletons and robots that can go in and in, into battlefields and lift very heavy objects yeah. so either like sending a robot in or having these exoskeletons that, that soldiers could actually put on to give them superhuman strength like Iron Man yeah now the video of the uh, robot mule is actually unintentionally hilarious did you watch it no it's I didn't. just it's completely silent there's no music or narration or anything it's just this robot mule headless headless robot mule that is like they're showing how it can go up hills and over rocks and through bushes and stuff and it's just well, it's unintentionally hilarious, and I, I recommend that you Google it. Yeah, because that, that upper body strength is something, too. When uh, we were looking at reactions from uh, soldiers saying, you know what, like when you are out and you have a soldier down, you've got to run out there, you have all of your gear on, which weighs a million pounds, estimated, and <laughs> and women don't have the strength to pick someone else up, yeah. toss them over their shoulders. But then there are other people who say, you know what, I've actually seen it, in the the battlefields of female soldiers doing this. So I mean if anything though it's good that there there is technology moving moving that forward to yeah. make that more of a moot point. Yeah. And there is I just like to point out a teddy bear robot that goes in and saves soldiers. Yeah. It has a teddy bear on it. Well, not really a teddy bear, but it's got like a bear head. So that it's supposedly more comforting when you're saving a terrified soldier. And in response to those concerns over unit cohesion, whether men and women can you know, stand side by side on the battlefield and not 
you know, have emotions or sex get in the way. Um, there have been numerous studies, and this was pointed out in that article from Foreign Affairs, there have been numerous studies coming out of the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine and the U.S. Government Accountability Office, um, along with various military and academic experts, uh, that find over and over again that women's impact on unit cohesion and their physical abilities is negligible. In other words... The, the conclusion that most of these studies reach are that, yeah, guess what? Male and female soldiers can get along just fine, and they can stick to the mission and complete it. Maybe we need a When Harry Met Sally on the battlefield. What that do you be mean? A sequel. That could be a sequel. Oh, on the battlefield. Yeah. Get it? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> so moving on from me making terrible half-hearted jokes, um, America is far from the first country to let women into the military. Yeah, I mean, that's that's another argument of, hey, you know what? There are 12 other countries already doing this, and they're doing just fine. Yeah, Canada. Hey, Canada. Women were allowed into all military roles there in 1987, and as of 2006, more than 200 women were part of the regular combat force, and more than 900 were part of the reserve combat force. Yeah, internet genius Hillary Reisenberg over at BuzzFeed um, itemized all of these countries that have already let women in combat. I mean, we're behind, like, Romania, Poland, Finland. I mean, you might say, well, no. I mean, this is the, the American army. The U.S. military is the most elite military force in the world. It's huge. You know, we can't – apples to oranges if we're talking about Poland, Finland, or, you know, Sweden. No offense to Poland, Finland, or Sweden. Um so, of course, it would take a longer time, but uh, it, I think that there are plenty of people, such as those four ACLU lawsuit plaintiffs, who would say it's past due yeah. for this to happen. And as far as I know, that lawsuit is still pending mm-hmm. because they sued uh, Leon Panetta, the Secretary of Defense. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how the, the lifting of the combat exclusion ban affects that lawsuit, um, but I believe it is still in court, that yeah. it didn't just magically disappear. With- I mean, not to be too informal about this, but if Colleen Farrell would like to write in, if she's listening, and talk to us about it. Let us know. Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and when we when we posted about the combat exclusion ban being lifted on our Facebook page, there there were a couple of people amid all of the high fives mm-hmm. who said uh, sarcastically, oh, great. Well, now women are, you know, equal opportunity to be shot at and killed. And there are, you know, moral arguments that, well, should we really cheer on women being involved when war is wrong and this is violence and it, it's it's a product of you know a testosterone fueled culture and all of these negative things um, and and I can understand I can understand people's moral opposition to war but I cannot agree with um, gender-based discrimination in the workplace which is what this boils down to mm-hmm. so it'll be interesting to see though between now and January 2016, whether or not exclusions will still be put in place. Because the government said, hey, you know, if you, you have until 2016 to implement this, but you can still make a compelling case for saying, hey, you know what? Uh, 
special ops forces, you know, we want to keep it to you know, these super elite forces. We're going to keep them to, to men only. Yeah. And I have a feeling that there will be still some that women are kept out of. So military personnel listening, I know that you're out there. I want to know what's going on, on on the ground, because, of course, there were so many media stories after that getting reactions from soldiers. Mm-hmm. And I wonder now that the dust has settled just a little bit. Um, if if it makes that big of a deal, there were some people who were saying kind of in the same reactions to the don't ask, don't tell policy being lifted, where it was like it, it doesn't change anything day to day. We're still doing our jobs. Yeah. I would like to hear how widespread my friend's father's opinion is. I have if, a feeling there's a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it is uh, it, it, the whole band of brothers mm-hmm. kind of thing. I, I can I can understand that. I have a military personnel in my family. I can I can see that. Um, but again, when it's like a skills based thing and if women have the skills then they should be able to apply for and get the job yeah. if they're qualified. So send us your letters, everyone. What what do you think? And even if you're not in the military, what, what do you think about all of this? Momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can send those letters. Well, I have an email here from Zara, and this is in response to our podcast on vocal fry. And she offers a little linguistic insight. She writes, you mentioned switching your accent and speech patterns to match the person you're speaking to. This is called style shifting or code switching. By dialectical people, people who use two accents of the same language are known to do this according to their interlocutor, often completely unintentionally. I know I do it and it gets on my husband's last nerve because he says I have a fake French accent. I'm a French speaking Quebecer with a lot of French exposure, especially when I was a kid. My French accent has devolved a bit since it's been a long time since I've been in contact with French people, but it's still completely unintentional. Stopping it actually requires a conscious effort. On top of that, I quickly start matching my interlocutor's accent or speech patterns. I remember when a Belgian friend came over for two weeks in Quebec, she stayed with me, and after 10 days, I was starting to have a Belgian accent. Ooh, I wonder if I could master a Belgian accent. That's your next goal. (sighs) It's good to have goals. (laughs) I'm convinced that if you drop me in Great Britain, I'd acquire a British accent pretty quickly. Keep up the good work. So thanks, Zara. Accent sponge. (laughs) Uh, Here's one from Lloyd. Kristen, this is a Canadian dude listener. Uh, He wanted to specify that he's one of our guy listeners, and we appreciate it. Lloyd says, I think Canadian upspeak is more subtle than the examples you gave. It sounded more like valley girl than Canadian. It seems valley girl upspeak is up on the second to last syllable, then up again on the last syllable. Canadian seems to be up on the second to last syllable, then flat or even down a bit on the last syllable. I'm, I'm going to need examples, Kristen. I grew up in New Brunswick, Canada, and didn't really notice it until I was away in the U.S. for a number of years and would talk to people in the Maritimes, especially the rural areas, given all the Maritimes are pretty rural. I'm not much of a linguist, so I had trouble putting my finger on it, but there seems to be a difference. Valley Girl just sounds unsure and questioning. Canadian seems to end every sentence with the tonal equivalent of, you know what I mean? But I'm pretty biased. So thank you, Lloyd. I'm trying to think of what that would be because he said it would go flat on the second to last syllable. So like, yeah, up on the second to last, then flat or even down a bit on the last syllable. I will be trying to think of an example. Okay. And when Kristen does, maybe we'll post a video of her accent. 
my yes. Uh, so so thanks especially to our Canadian listeners hey. for writing in to momstuff at discovery. Dot com. That's where you can send your letters. You can also send us Facebook messages. Like us there while you're at it. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast and follow us on Tumblr as well at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And you can read a lot of articles over at our website as well during the week. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 